Satellite Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Bethay. So as we exit Easter season, I was looking back over some old notes that I'd written and found a lesson that I had put together last year right after Easter to teach our Central class. And it was appropriately titled, Jesus is Alive, What Do We Do Now? And I have to share that my experience as a believer and reflecting on who Jesus is has really been challenged and changed a lot recently by watching the show Chosen, who I've heard about this show for years. I haven't really had much interest in watching it. I don't really like watching a lot of serious stuff, as a lot of you know that know me personally. I like spaceships and superheroes, but I remember watching an episode on a flight to one of my best friend's funerals in December, and I watched the first episode and got done watching it in absolute tears. And since then, I've watched parts of six episodes, and at the end of four of these episodes, I've been in tears. And the funny thing is, What's moved me is when Jesus speaks to people that are in places of brokenness or when Jesus calls people for the first time. And all these scenes where you're watching Jesus interact with these people has just made my own relationship with Jesus feel so real. Because when I hear him talk to these people and talk about their brokenness and what he's calling them out of and how he wants to interact with them and why he's there to meet them, it's like he's talking directly to me through this avatar of Jesus that's on the screen. So I wanted to give a quick endorsement to that show, and you won't hear me endorse a lot of things like that. But for me personally, it makes Jesus personable and makes him real to me. And that has been like the biggest takeaway I've had from that show is that it makes me feel Jesus in ways that I don't really normally feel. So I want to give that quick disclaimer. And again, that's relevant to me right now because as we exit Easter season where we just celebrated who Jesus is, One of the things my pastor talked about this past week was making the crucifixion personal, making the resurrection personal, and the fact that Jesus didn't die to take place in historical event. He died and resurrected to connect us with him. It was personal. And so in light of Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he's alive and we have a new covenant that grants us salvation and direct access to God, to a person, how should we respond? When we look at the early church, how did they respond? And does our response to the resurrection match that of early believers? And so I wrote this down and then I asked the question very simply, what did the early church do after the resurrection? And... My answer was, they honored the last commandments of Jesus. So, what were those last commandments? So, we famously have Jesus talking to the disciples in Matthew 28, 19, saying to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the word he uses there for baptize literally means to immerse. And again, he specifies here the Father, who is God in heaven, the Son, who is God made flesh, and the Spirit, who is God inside of us. And so... I kind of thought it was neat to summarize it in this way. Go and make disciples and immerse people in the complete and full revelation of God. That's kind of how I read it. I don't know if that helps you, but I thought that was a cool way of thinking of it, that he's telling them to not only go and baptize people physically, but to immerse them in a full revelation of who God is. And remember, this is a new revelation because to this point, they have only known God as God the Father. God the Son, who is Christ in front of them, and God the Holy Spirit, who is yet to come, would be new revelations to these people. Then in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16, you have, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. 
He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. This is followed in verses 17 and 18 by Jesus saying that signs in the actual word there is attesting miracles will accompany believers. Then verse 20, it says that preaching of the gospel happened and was accompanied by shocker attesting miracles. So recapping this, he says, go preach it. It's going to be accompanied by signs that affirm the power that you're going forth with. And then a few verses later, it happens. And then in Luke 24, 49, he says, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, the reason this one is significant is obviously he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but the reason it's significant is because the manner in which God's power, God's Spirit, is going to be deployed is different than what we saw in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we saw the Spirit deployed temporarily to accomplish certain tasks on people. And we're about to see the Spirit indwell and empower believers for everyday life, not just specific tasks. And that's different. So, quick summary. The early believers were told to, one, wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. But their waiting was not passive. They met together to pray, worship, and raise up new leaders and disciples from among them. And we know this from the first four to six chapters of Acts. Then, two, they were told to share the gospel and make disciples with the world around them. And number one, empowered them to do number two. Now, this is the next question. One that I don't think is discussed enough. What does it actually mean to make disciples? I think a very simple approach to this is to simply look at what Jesus did in his interactions with his disciples. In the simplest terms, Jesus did everyday life with his followers. They worked, ate, worshipped, went to pray for sick relatives, and then intentionally he shared truth about God as he was doing life with them. So there's not really any reason to think it should look any differently today. Yeah, y'all can get together and read a book, but go to their house, eat dinner, play with their kids, hang out with their family. And as you're doing these things together, share what God has revealed to you, what God's teaching you, what you've prayed about, what God's shown you in the word. I think that's what it's supposed to look like. And the call to discipleship includes and probably begins with our own children, for those of you that are parents. It's also interesting to note that Jesus gave this command to his 11 remaining disciples, 10 of whom were probably under age 20. And I've mentioned this before, but when Jesus goes to pay the temple tax in Matthew 17, 25 to 27, he only pays it for himself and Peter. And that was a tax that was only required to people over age 20, indicating that the other disciples that are present with him were under age 20, meaning that, you know, this commission is given to a bunch of teenagers, which is, you know, really interesting. Now, here's a wrinkle that I want to throw at you. In the Old Testament, do we see God commanding his people to extend the invitation to follow him with others outside of Israel? In other words, were the people of God commanded to invite others into the Old Covenant? When you think about it, it seems like the answer to this is really no. In the Old Testament, they were to pursue holiness through separation and living distinctly from the world around them. They were asked to prophesy to the world around them, and occasionally specific prophets were called to preach repentance, like Jonah going to Nineveh. But we don't see other nations being invited to join the Old Covenant. And that's really interesting to me. 
while God revealed himself to people outside of Israel, and we have a lot of cases of that, it was at his prerogative and his discretion. Now, now a command is given to share God's love and salvation with the entire world. And I don't know if we realize just how big of a shift that is. They weren't called to do it previously. And we are empowered to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's this great illustration that I found from Desiring God. And I'm not the biggest John Piper fan, but I think he's an incredible gifted teacher. He's just not really my flavor. But he shares this great illustration. And pardon me for reading it, but it's long and detailed, and I don't want to screw it up. So, now let me suggest an analogy to illustrate the experience of the Spirit before and after Pentecost. Picture a huge dam for hydroelectric power under construction, like the As One High Dam on the Nile. 375 feet high and 11,000 feet across. Egypt's President Nasser announced the plan for construction in 1953, and the dam was completed in 1970. And in 1971, there was a grand dedication ceremony, and the 12 turbines of the dam with 10 billion kilowatt hour capacity were turned on or leashed with enough power to light every city in Egypt. During the long period of construction, the Nile River wasn't completely stopped. Even as the reservoir for the dam was filling, part of the river was allowed to flow past. The country folk downstream depended on it because they drank it, they washed it in it, they watered their crops and turned their mill wheels with it. They sailed on it in the moonlight and wrote songs about it. It was their life. But on the day when the reservoir poured through the turbines, a power was unleashed that spread far beyond what the folk down the river knew before and brought possibilities that they had never dreamed of. Well, Pentecost is like, the opening of the Aswan High Dam. Before Pentecost, the river of God's Spirit blessed the people of Israel and was their very life. But after Pentecost, the power of the Spirit spread out to light the whole world. None of the benefits enjoyed in the pre-Pentecost days were taken away, but 10 billion kilowatts were added to enable the church to take the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to every tongue and tribe and nation. So, we just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. Does our response match that of early believers? And I want to ask you this in closing. To what extent is the 10 billion kilowatt power of the Holy Spirit active in your life at this time? And beyond your own individual life, how is the work of the Holy Spirit evident in the corporate life of your church? And it's important to note that not every church can display every single element we see in Acts. For example, a church strong community outreach may be weaker in missions or worship. It's just the way it is. A church strong in charity might be weaker in discipleship. Not every church is strong in all areas of ministry, but every church should be displaying, should be displaying some of the fruits discussed in Acts. And I would ask you to evaluate, how is your church doing? And even within denominations, we see this. The Catholic Church is stronger in reverence for God. The Baptist Church is strong in missions and evangelism. The Pentecostal Church is strong in worship and the gifts of the Spirit. Together, Christ's fallen churches form a corporate church that displays a full picture of the ministry of the Spirit and God's activity here on earth, even if each individual church doesn't display it perfectly. So, is the Spirit's fruit active in your life and in your church? And then secondly, how are we fulfilling 
the call to make disciples. Are you pouring into the lives of people around you and sharing Jesus with them as you go along your way? And if not, who in your life could God be calling you to do this with? It's a question that I'm asking myself. This has been Dave Bethay for the Satellite Podcast. That's it for today. Thank you for listening.